eigenlijk de Christmas Day. En all over the world, several billion people from every nation on earth will remember Christmas Day. Yeah, the birth of a baby named Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in a small town, large village, called Bethlehem, passed largely without question in the Roman province of Judea in which it was situated. And it merited no attention in the wider world. Until some months later, prestigious visitors from the east arrived at the court of King Herod in Jerusalem with a question. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. In his Gospel account in the New Testament, Matthew records the response that this question evoked. Matthew 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And today I just simply want to focus on this question, on this disturbing question. For as we look at it, I think we'll discover it's a question that still disturbs people today. And in Matthew's account, which follows, that was read for us, Matthew 2, 1 to 18, we see contrasting responses to the question. Responses that are typical still today of people to the coming of Jesus. Uh, the first and most obvious response is that of King Herod. We could summarize it by the word hostility. Herod seeks to destroy Jesus. Now, if like me, and I have a couple of degrees in theology, I still get confused. Whenever you read in the Bible about Herod, you wonder which Herod are we talking about here? Because there are several Herods, very popular name. I often dedicate children in Charlotte Chapel. I've never dedicated a Herod yet. Maybe a first time. Perhaps for good reason. Or a Jezebel, but we won't go into that. This is the Herod. Herod the Great. As he became known. Uh, Outside the New Testament, the Jewish historian Josephus gives us a lot of details about all sorts of things, and particularly about Herod. Uh, let me summarize some things about him, just so you get a, a sort of picture of what kind of man we're talking about. There's a nice inscription of him there. That's a genuine picture of him, uh, carved in stone. Herod the Great was born in 73 BC. He was named King of Judea, the Roman province, by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. And within three years, in 37 B.C., with the help of Roman forces, he had crushed all opposition to his rule. He was wealthy, politically gifted, an excellent administrator. He was clever enough to remain in the good graces of several Roman emperors in succession. His famine relief was superb. His building projects, including the great temple in Jerusalem, were admired even by his enemies. But, he left power, inflicted incredibly heavy taxes on the people. He resented the Jews because they regarded him as not a true born Jew, as, an, as a usurper. 
And in his final years, and we're almost at them here in this story, suffering from an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and fits of rage and jealousy. He killed his close associates. He murdered his wife, Mariamne, and at least two of his sons. That's the Herod that we meet in Matthew chapter 2. So you can imagine his reaction to the news that a new king of the Jews has been born. It's true to form. Whoever the baby is, it has nothing to do with him. And so Herod the king sees Jesus as a threat to his rule who must be eliminated ruthlessly yet cleverly. So he says to the wise men, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may come and worship him. Behind the facade of pretended worship of Jesus, he plots to use the Magi, the wise men, to lead him to the baby. Now, Herod is the supreme egomaniac, the king par excellence. So any other king who stands in his way must be removed from the scene. And yet, in many ways, he represents us. Because basically, all of us are egomaniacs. We run our, our lives, our way, for our benefit. We put ourselves and our own interests first. I don't think we've got any literal kings here in Charlotte Chapel this morning. Shake hands at the door and introduce yourself if you are, and welcome. But, uh, but we are kings in our own sphere of influence. Be it work, home, pleasure. And when, we, when that authority is threatened... We put up our defences and then we go on the aggressive. Uh, some of us are more successful than others. We manage to reach the top of the pile. The pile may be a big one or a small one. But even where it's a small one, we hold on jealously to power, even if for some of us at some times it means sacrificing those that we love the most. You see, the great human problem is selfishness, self-centeredness. From an early age, we all aspire to be kings. Did you used to play that game when you were a child? Find a little hill outside in the park. We lived opposite a park when I grew up on a council estate. Find the nearest hill and you climb the top and say, who's the king of the castle? You're a dirty rascal. It's worse that effect. <laughs> and we, the idea was to get at the top and push everybody else off. In later years, it becomes king of the office, King of the family, king of the golf club, even king of the church. We hold on to personal power, king of my life. You see, our essential problem is this. We want to be kings, but we are designed to be subjects. We want to be kings, but we're designed to be subjects. We are not kings. God is king. The Lord is king, says the Bible emphatically time and again. And the only way we find our fulfilment, the only way we find how we fit in this world, is when we live under his benevolent authority. His obedient servants. His close friends. But deep down, none of us are content with that. We want to be king. In fact, we want to be God. 
And interestingly, that's the way the world is and the way we are, because that's how it all started. If you know this book, the Bible, right at the beginning, that's how it all started. In the Garden of Eden, with our first parents, when it all went wrong. It's worth reading the story closely. It's a wonderful story, because God's account of what really happened. And the tempter comes along. He sows the seeds of doubt about God's goodness and what God has really said. But notice the appeal. It's not the fruit itself, it's what it offers. And when Eve and then Adam understand they're taken in by the lie. The serpent, the tempter in the form of the serpent said, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What a challenge. What an attractive lure. You'll become like God. God. And having believed the light, it's an inevitable consequence that leads them to disobey God's command. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And just as inevitable was what followed, what God said would follow, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. That relationship with God has been broken. But even when God passed his judgment, and again you can miss this if you read the story, even when God passed his judgment, there was a promise of salvation. Way back then, you may think, what's he talking about Genesis for? Christmas. Because Christmas is a fulfilment of what God promised in the first chapters of Genesis. Note the words he spoke to the serpent in his judgment. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Very mysterious words. So the centuries roll by. Until, as the Apostle Paul writes, this promise of salvation was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full right of sins, that we might be restored to the relationship that was broken all those years before. Great hymn writer Charles Wesley, uh, in this great carol we're going to finish with, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, in a, in a little while, a few moments yet. And uh, there's one verse we rarely sing, so I've put it in at the end, all right? Uh, because Wesley knew his theology and he knew the story. This is what it says. The last verse says, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. As you know Genesis, you won't know that. That's why we don't sing it today, because people don't know Genesis. But we will sing it in a few moments, God willing. And so when Jesus comes into the world, what happens? He faces a world in rebellion. They don't welcome him with open arms. The Herods of the world want to destroy him. For he threatens their power base. In the opening words of his gospel, John doesn't have an account of the Christmas events, but he uses a broad sweep to describe the coming of the world. The word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, with God. All things were made by him. And he says, he was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So that's the first response to the disturbing question. I wonder if that's your response to Jesus, like that of Herod. 
hostility. You want to run your own life your own way. You don't want God to interfere with you. You don't want Jesus to have any part in it. But there is a contrasting response, of course. That of the Magi. And if you want a word to summarize that, which rhymes and we'll hope to remember it, it's the word humility. They don't seek to destroy Jesus. They want to worship Jesus. The account of these mysterious visitors is shrouded in mystery. Uh, Traditions and carols, again, describe them as possessing royal birth. We three kings of Orient are. Probably wrong on all counts, but it's got some truth in it, somewhere. I'm not sure there were three, not sure they're kings, and they certainly didn't come from the Orient, if you mean China, but whatever. Uh, The old translation of wise men is closer. In the New International Version, you'll see it's translated as Magi, M-A-G-I, which means nothing to anybody, much, until you add a C at the end, and then you get what it's about. M-A-G-I-C. Magic. That's what these guys are into. They're astrologers, probably from Persia or Iraq, can't be absolutely certain. They examine the stars and the ancient writings, trying to discern divine portents that they thought they saw in the stars. Stated simply, here are people who are seeking the truth. And all over the world, in every culture, in every nation, people have the same hunger, the same desire to seek for God. It's it's a built-in capacity within us. I once saw a very interesting interview on television between a man who believed the Bible and the story of creation and three evolutionists who thought it was all nonsense. They had a big long discussion and at the end one of the men said, just as about to finish, he said, well, whatever we say, it's it's an odd thing, isn't it, that people all over the world still seem to believe in God. Uh, And the man in question jumped in and said, it's not odd at all, it's built into our nature. We're made in the image of God. We're made to know God. We're made to seek God. There's a hunger within us. You may remember when the Apostle Paul arrived on one of his missionary journeys at the great city of Athens, centre of academic brilliance for the whole ancient world, and yet a city full of idols, he appeared before the ruling academic body, the Areopagus. And this is what he said, From one man he, that is God, made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them, the exact places where they should live. God did this, why? So that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Acts 17. So it is with these major, as within their own culture, by the only means known to them, They follow their calling in seeking the truth in the stars. So it is as they scan the night sky, they see a bright new star. Probably the word is correct, the footnote in the enemy, and it's rising rather than the east. A new star arises in the sky which alerts them, and we don't know how, to the fact that a new king of the Jews has been born. But this is only the start of the journey. The point of the story is not to commend astrology. Some people think this is an invented story, critics say, but it's been well said. A church that found itself in conflict with astrology within 30 years is hardly going to write a story that seems to commend it. It's only the start of the journey. For natural religion, stars, human reasoning, can only take you so far. And sometimes it takes you down the wrong path. 
Thus it is that they arrive in Israel and they assume right place, newborn king, Herod's court, palace, Jerusalem. But they're wrong. And Herod, as we've read in his court, are all disturbed. So Herod turns to religious experts. He puts the disturbing question to them. Where, he says, will the Christ, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, the promised one, where will he be born? You see, those seeking the truth need to look beyond the stars. Maybe you're a seeker after truth. Maybe you're you're into spiritual things. That's good. God has placed that within you. And you've been trying by all sorts of different means. But sometimes it can lead you to a dead end. You need not only the stars, you need to look in the scriptures, in this book, to discover what God has said clearly. It's not surprising that foreigners like the Magi would turn up at the wrong place. And it's not surprising, really, that a pretend Jew like Herod doesn't know the answer to his question. But any Jewish Sabbath school pupil knew the answer. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two big competing Jewish religious groups, couldn't fall out on this one. The birthplace of the Messiah had been predicted 700 years before by a prophet named Micah. And they tell him, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, this is what the prophet has written, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. There's no mistake. It even specifies which Bethlehem it was. In Israel, there were two Bethlehems. Bethlehem in Naphtali, which is way up in the north, Bethlehem in Judea, which is in the south, in the province of Judah, in the tribe of Judah. The scriptures put the Magi back on course and redirected. They continue their journey down the road to the little town, village of Bethlehem. And God in his goodness confirms their course with the reappearance of the star. And so they enter. Matthew describes it. Look carefully as the house. The child is now a toddler. The family are no longer in the place where he was born. And here at Journey's End, we read they're overjoyed when they find the answer to their searching. They bow down in worship and they present their gifts to the king. Seeking the truth, guided by star and scripture, they find the answer in Jesus. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Very significant. They bowed down and worshipped a baby or a toddler. The one who is not only king of the Jews, but also king of the Gentiles, people like them. They were the first Gentiles to come and worship Christ. One of a great stream. You see, God's plan right from the beginning was to encompass encompass all nations on earth. It's good news of great joy for all people. That's why in a church like this, you look around, there are people on Christmas Day, we normally put a big map of the world up and we say, we go through the different continents and we list all the countries represented. It normally runs to at least 20, 25 
it's been over 30 on occasions, different nationalities who are here with us in this particular church. Just, just a small picture of the great universal church of God's people who bow down in humility before him. And I simply want to say at this Christmas time that it is only in, on your knees before Jesus in humble worship that you find the end of your searching, that you can be restored to the relationship with God for which you were made. I wonder if you're still searching, still looking. This Christmas can be the beginning of new life for you. So, two contrasting responses to the disturbing question. Hostility or humility. But I imagine there are some of us here saying, well, I don't fall into either category. I'm not a worshipper of Jesus, okay. But I'm not against him either. I'm, I'm Swiss. I'm neutral. Hmm? Sorry to the Swiss. And as you read Matthew's account, is there not a third response to the birth of Jesus? Seen in the chief priests and teachers of the law. You know, the ones whom Herod consulted about where the child would be born? Oh, they got the right answer. It's the answer they've been waiting for centuries for. Bethlehem in Judea. It's actually five or six miles down the road from where they are. Six miles south of Jerusalem. And these exotic visitors from goodness knows where have appeared on the scene. They tell of a remarkable sign. Why, even Herod the Great is disturbed by it. Surely you'd think to yourself, this is worth checking out. Yet as far as we know, having given the right answer to the question, they went back to their books and scrolls, back to their infighting. Rather than hostility or humility, the response of religious leaders was one of apathy. Ignoring Jesus. Missing the opportunity to meet their Messiah. How tragic, how incredible. And how sad it is that in our nation, where you can walk into any shop and buy the Bible in dozens of different versions, where you can attend any church freely, there are people who are just not interested at all. Apathetic. They hang a sign over their lives saying, don't disturb. Or as the man said, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. I mean, if you're that sort of person this morning, our response to Jesus can be one of apathy. But I would suggest to you, as I've looked at it more closely, I think there are really still only two responses to Jesus, either for or against. For it's not possible to remain apathetic to Jesus once you really understand who he is. Not just a baby in the manger, but the man Jesus. And what he said and did. All these religious leaders, their initial response was one of disinterest, couldn't care less. Until, at the age of 30, Jesus burst onto the scene in Israel and began to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Then their authority was threatened. Their hypocrisy was exposed. And their apathy turned to hostility. And finally, you know the story. And in an unholy alliance with the Herod of their day, a different Herod, the occupying Roman authorities, they conspired to have Jesus arrested and tried on a capital charge. Here's John's account of the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, notice what we've been talking about and notice the words. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, Crucify him. 
his Pilate, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And where Herod the Great failed, they seemed to succeed. Jesus is put to death, nailed to a cross, his dead body taken down and laid in a borrowed tomb. So in conclusion, let's return to the disturbing question. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Is he dead and buried? No. He's alive and well. Like Christmas, the events of Easter are all parts of part of God's incredible plan. A plan that no one, the Herods of the world, can thwart. A plan that even encompasses human wickedness at its worst. The Apostle Peter explained to some of those who had crucified Jesus. On the day of Pentecost he said, This man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. A great hymn in one of the New Testament letters gives us the answer, the final answer to our disturbing question. Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place, given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where is he now? He's ascended to the highest place. One day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord for resistance to God and his plan is useless. I wonder what is your response to the question today? Wise men and wise women voluntarily bow the knee in worship with joy before the one who is not only the baby in the manger, but the one who is the risen, ascended, Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. I trust that you are one of them. Let's pray together.